0: Coming up today, we'll get a legal perspective on the proposed federal takeover of Internet service providers.
1: Well, what the Biden administration is proposing is, who cares what uh, the market requires, who cares what private companies require, we are going to determine if, when, where all things concerning the Internet going forward will be administered.
0: Then, Israel and a two-state solution. Is a land for peace deal the answer?
2: But the Palestinian leadership, whether it's the West Bank or whether it's Gaza, aren't interested in a two-state solution. That is something being pushed by the intellectuals of the
0: West. Also, we'll hear how false views of Jesus are driving churches and individuals to abandon historic Christianity. As I encounter people who have a woke version of Jesus, he's more enlightened. And so that's a form of deconstruction in that regard. It's the weekend of February 17th and 18th. I'm Jeff Shambly, and this is The Stand Radio. The Biden administration has asked the FCC to take complete control of the way internet service providers do business in America. This policy is so bad that FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr had this to say.
2: The Biden
1: administration has pressed the FCC to break hard left, and it has. The Biden administration has put ideology over smart policy. Indeed, almost three years into this administration, a clear pattern has emerged. The Biden administration's entire approach to the Internet, its broadband agenda, if you will, can be boiled down to one word, control.
0: Abraham Hamilton, III, general counsel for the American Family Association and host of the Hamilton Corner on AFR, has already been sounding the alarm prior to the November 15th vote at the FCC.
1: He's here with us to explain where we are now in this process. Abe, welcome. Thank you. Um, unfortunately, the FCC passed this measure on November 15th. Uh, listeners may be familiar with this. It's it's really a politically comprised body yeah. where you have five commissioners in total. Two of the five are normally nominated from one party, the other two from another party. And then the deciding vote, if you will, is usually appointed by the current Oval Office occupant. So mm-hmm. we'll have a reshuffling of the balance of power, if you will, ideologically at the FCC with the election of a new president. Uh if and when that happens from a different party. Um, but one of the major things to, to, to identify is, as you've said, this is a, a promulgation of total control of Internet service provision Uh, by the federal government, (laughs) you know, with considering how central internet functionality has become to our lives. It really is a mechanism that is proposed for total control. Uh, So where it leaves us currently in terms of of how do we fight against this, how do we push back against this? You have really two trajectories that are happening at the same time. One of the FCC's action is extra congressional, meaning that it it exceeds the boundary and the scope of the FCC. And then traverses into the territory that should be within the jurisdiction of Congress. Additionally, this is extra constitutional in that, uh, stop if you heard this before, the Biden administration has completely flaunted the Constitution yeah. in an effort to present a rule to the FCC, in a, an expansive regulation through the FCC, which will invariably be challenged in court as well as legislation proposed at the congressional level uh, to make sure that the FCC does not uh, usurp the authority that is reserved by the U.S. Constitution to Congress and Congress alone. Abe, there may be people listening who have no idea what this whole policy is about. Back up and
0: give us the 30,000-foot view. What sort of details does this involve the FCC's administration of?
1: Yeah, basically what the Biden administration is proposing is that it alone, meaning the Biden administration, sets the parameters of what type of services internet service providers can provide, where uh, communications uh, infrastructure will be established. If you live in a rural area, whether or not your area gets, you know, high-speed internet, fiber internet, or whatever type of internet, it really causes the federal government to be the one to ultimately be the decider of these factors, whereas as it stands currently – private companies make those determinations based on market factors. Well, what the Biden administration is proposing is who cares what uh, Mm -hmm. the market requires, who cares Mm -hmm. what private companies require, we are going to determine if, when, and where all things concerning the Internet going forward will be administered. So for a
0: user, uh, you know, you think of, okay, as a user, I'm concerned about the price, the customer service, and the reliability. So what you're saying is I no longer go to my business. I go to the federal government
1: for those determinations. Absolutely correct. And this is why FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr has been so mm. uh, apoplectic, if you will, yeah. to say this is something that has never been done in the history of our country. This this has never been done before mm-hmm. um, and uh, because it is so overly broad. It is obviously extra constitutional, obviously extra congressional. And so it, it is beckoning a type of attention that, that the FCC really hasn't had historically, nor do they really, really want.
0: One of the things that our internet service providers typically don't get involved with is the content, the free Mm -hmm. speech that's on the internet. So given the administration's push for diversity, equity, and inclusion, how likely is this to influence
1: what you communicate on the internet? It is very likely. Uh, Just a hypothetical example, uh, if you happen to post something on what I call the artist formerly known as Twitter, on X, (laughs) Uh, and you happen to have someone who objects to what you post and they add some form of community note to have the expansive uh, accessibility of your tweet to be throttled down, well, should this provision, should this regulation from the Biden administration take root, then you could also have that followed up with a severing of your service connectivity because your Internet service provider, which is government anchored, uh, objects to the way that you've utilized this. So it has the wherewithal to set the drumbeats for the the actual implementation of the type of Gestapo uh, tactics that we've only read about uh, from the annals of history. Well, now these things are coming forward to this current day and age and Internet connectivity and service provision is the means by which the First Amendment could also be uh eviscerated even further so instead of having your account flagged for inappropriate community content your whole internet service could be terminated potentially potentially or or you remove from having you know high speed fiber to having the equivalent of dial-up you know that just said they said we haven't eliminated your connectivity but we've just decided that your your area your provision your usage is not conducive for high-speed connectivity sort of like social credit for the internet Exactly like social credit for the internet.
0: Abe, as we conclude this conversation on this issue, let's bring it down to where we are as believers. I mean, there are certain things that we know. God is in control of, mm-hmm. of everything mm-hmm. that we should not fear. Mm-hmm. So when we look and we see every single door that we have had open for generations in terms of religious liberty, the the freedom to, to advance the kingdom through our ideas mm-hmm. and the way that we live, how are we to respond to this kind of worldview where complete total control is being put before us?
1: Yeah, I, I'm always uh, reminded uh, as I communicate with others and encouraging myself uh, with Acts chapter 17 that okay. before the foundations of the world it was our Lord who determined the boundaries of our habitations mm. and the times in which we would be alive and then he told us why so that men should seek God so it mm-hmm. is God's desire for us Bible believing Christians to understand what's happening around us but nevertheless recognize that God has planted us here to be his ambassadors in the face of all of this and I often uh, draw encouragement um, from you know, pastors in the underground church in China and other places where they don't have our First Amendment, they don't have our constitutional history, uh, when they know, you know, Big Brother is watching. And so their conclusion was, well, since we know the government is watching, let's give them an authentic representation of what Christ following looks like. You know, the same thing, the same principle applies to us. Uh, Though the natural things may seem to be moving in a particular direction, God has still given us breath in our lungs and we still have an opportunity to be a demonstration of what authentic Christ following looks like. So I would would encourage the listeners and and the viewers Uh, to consider what God may require of you in the face of all of this. It's not an occasion for us to become listful or hopeless, but that we should uh, increase our commitment in crying out to our Lord and resolving in our hearts to obey him, come what may. Good way to
0: end the conversation. Abe, so good to talk with you. Thanks for being with us today to help us understand this. My pleasure, thank you. With the war in Gaza now going on for over three months, we've seen a steady shift in world opinion away from outrage against Hamas to one of subtle accommodation. An example of that is the push for a two-state solution led by the Biden administration as the road toward peace. Is that a rational response to what was done on October 7th by Hamas? Here to help us sort through that and other questions is American Family News Director Fred Jackson. Good to be with you, Jeff. What about that? Is a Palestinian state alongside Israel uh, the answer to this war?
2: Well, uh, I guess we have uh, distant history and uh, recent history to answer that question. And I suppose my response could simply be no. Uh, When you go back, uh, for instance, all the way uh, to the days of Yasser Arafat, uh, Camp David Accords, Uh, we were so close. Arafat. Uh, the then Palestinian leader, got over 90% of what he wanted. It -hmm. could have achieved a Palestinian state, uh, but he wanted everyone who had named themselves as a Palestinian to be able to return. It was the right of return question. And that would have destroyed the nation of Israel, no question about it. And, And then the more recent history has many observers of what happened on October 7th have said There were two states in place on October the 6th. Um, Israel uh, was living peacefully. Uh, People in Gaza uh, were doing their thing. Many Gazans were crossing the border every day to work in Israel. And that all ended uh, with the Hamas-orchestrated massacre of more than 1,200 Israeli men, women, and children. I was reading an article uh, recently uh, where uh, Hamas terrorists first went into Israel on October the 7th. But they were followed by many yep. citizens in, and what and what they did has been well documented on that day. So uh, the answer is that the Palestinian leadership, I will not say all Palestinians, but the Palestinian leadership, whether it's the West Bank or whether it's Gaza, aren't interested in a two-state solution. Mm-hmm. That is something being pushed by the intellectuals of the West. But the uh, the Palestinian leadership, they've had an opportunity for a two-state solution. They don't want it. Uh, the rhetoric of from the river to the sea yeah. is not just anti-Semitic protesters here in the United States. We've heard that phrase so much since October the 7th. Uh, that is the reality – That is the reality of what Palestinian children are taught. Uh, They want the nation of Israel wiped off the face of the earth.
0: Fred, prior to the October 7th massacre, Israel was a very divided nation politically. How has this affected the openness of the average Israeli to consider a Land for Peace deal?
2: Um, the, you're, you're going to get reports in the liberal mainstream media that amplify that point of view. They'll find some Israeli citizens mm. who will say that. But uh, Carolyn Glick, who is the senior contributing editor of the Jewish News Syndicate, um, she's got really her hand on the pulse of what's going on there, mm. and she's been able to document in recent days The reality that, for instance, the families of Israeli soldiers who are fighting this battle, they do not want Israel being pressured by the United States and others. And here's the reason why. And it's what uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has said. We cannot have a ceasefire, especially the one being proposed recently for 150 days, because part of that plan being pushed— and advocated by the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, would allow Hamas to regain its foothold because part of the deal is to get Israel totally out of there. And these families of these soldiers say no. Hamas will just reform and the danger will be back once again. Mm -hmm. So if anything, I think Netanyahu has even more support now than he did uh, before his, you know, going back to his political problems prior to October the 7th. Mm -hmm. So I, I think the nation of Israel, for the most part, is well behind Netanyahu, who has stated, no, our campaign is to destroy Hamas, anything less than that, then we just see this problem reoccur again
0: he's been very clear on that Mm. fred compared to other nations how influential is u.s policy in driving international pressure for israel to divide its land
2: well again referring to the recent article from caroline glick uh, very very interesting in which uh, she has talked to some of the families of the hostages and uh, they have said this campaign must continue Okay. Uh, in, in Glick's story, and this was very interesting, uh, uh, the United States has been pressuring Israel to allow these uh, more supplies uh, to come in uh, from Egypt. Mm-hmm. These truckloads of supplies, we've seen videos. And, and what these families of these hostages are saying, wait a minute, you're just prolonging the war. Because the Hamas terrorists then control those supplies coming in, and for the most part, they're keeping them to themselves, mm-hmm. and and Palestinian regular Palestinian citizens are starving. There is also the issue, according to Glick's uh, article, where the United States is uh, forbidding uh, Palestinians to leave. Uh, There are countries that want to take these Palestinians in. I'm talking regular Palestinian residents. But the United States uh, and uh, Antony Blinken was recently quoted as saying there is no way that we are going to allow Palestinians to leave the Gaza Strip. That
0: is amazing. Um,
2: Do you think...
0: That Israel's dependence on America's military support, financial support, will have any bearing on how they continue to fight against Hamas, both in the south and the north?
2: Well, in human terms, sure. uh, Israel needs the weapons that the United States can provide. But I believe uh, in... uh, in God's relationship, special relationship with the Jewish people, mm-hmm. if the United States does not supply what Israel needs, God will find a way mm-hmm. uh, to deal with that. And, you know, uh, the blessings upon a nation are, as we are told in Scripture, uh, really depend on how nations treat Israel. And God forbid that uh, United States turn its back on the Jewish state.
0: Well, we'll continue to follow that story. Fred, always good to get your insight on this. Thank you for joining us. And you can find out more about this issue and many other issues by following the American Family News Team at AFN.net. Fred, thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Most of us are familiar with the label progressive when it comes to politics, but what about progressive Christianity? What does that mean? Jason Jimenez has written a new book titled Hijacking Jesus, How Progressive Christians Are Remaking Him and Taking Over His Church. He's with us to shed some light on the issue of progressive Christianity. Hi, Jason. Welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Great to be with you. Tell us, what is a progressive Christian?
3: Yeah, a progressive Christian, on the face of it, is someone who has modernized Jesus. What that means is they're looking for a refreshing of Jesus. They don't take him literally in the Gospels because they don't believe the Gospels, the canonical Gospels that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are factually and historically true, and they think that by taking it metaphorically, you can derive your own version of who Jesus is to you spiritually. Now, let me just say to your listeners every progressive Christian, for the most part, is going to have a different perspective because truth to them is relative. So their experience or their attraction may vary under the umbrella of progressive
0: Christianity. In the opening pages of your book, you said that you've never in your life felt so compelled to write a book as this. That's a very strong statement. Why did you say that? Yeah, this is actually my eighth book that I've been privileged to write, and the reason I
3: say that is because as I was traveling this great country of ours, teaching in churches, raising my four Gen Zers, I got two in college, one in high school, one in middle school. Even as I was having conversations, again, I'm a Christian apologist, so Mm -hmm. this is my space that I spend my my lifetime in, devoting to what the Bible teaches, contrary to what other worldviews, right, uh, oppose or object against Christianity. But one of the things I kept seeing over and over again was that how many people left the church, they still said they believed, or they had this woke version of Jesus. And as I began to assess, Jeff, people's viewpoints about Jesus around the country, as I travel from California to North Carolina, I find that they were having this, not a dumbed-down version, but a false portrayal of Jesus. And that's why I felt like I need to write this book, because the majority view now in America today are not holding to a biblical, traditional, orthodox view of Jesus.
0: When we read the four Gospels in the New Testament, uh, Jason, we get a very clear view of the real Jesus. So where does this notion of a different kind of Jesus come from? Yeah, that's a great question. And one of the things I wanted
3: to do, because this is what I was getting over and over again, is like, what is this movement? Where did it come from? How come we haven't seen it? And what I wanted to do at the beginning of the book of Hijacking Jesus is to kind of show the tracing of this, okay? Now, nothing's new under the sun, right, Jeff? I mean, we've seen this since the garden, when the enemy came in there, the serpent, and he deceived Adam and Eve and began to get them to question the very words of God. And that's the heart of what progressive Christianity is all about, is Mm -hmm. questioning the validity and the authority of the Bible. And so you go from a movement, and this actually, you kind of see this in history, where a guy named Richard Simon stepped in there, and he became the father of criticism, right. and he began to debunk the reliability of Scripture on the face of errors and discrepancies. And so hundreds of years later, we see that just disseminated, uh, you know, not only in the West, in England and Germany, but here in America. And so because of that, and there's other people that I mentioned that 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 were attacking the, the, the veracity of Scripture, but this anti-supernaturalistic Viewpoint, meaning the Bible has miracles, but science proves that miracles are impossible, therefore the Bible's false. Mm -hmm. That has really, really taken heart in the minds um, of many people who grew up in a Christian surrounding. And so, in secular universities, and now, unfortunately, in even universities or institutions that were once built on the bedrock of Christianity in the scriptures, are now saying, oh, they're not to be taken literally, they're taken metaphorically. And that's really where you see a lot of these false viewpoints of Jesus come because of their false interpretation of the Bible.
0: One of the trends, uh, Jason, that we see today is uh, that of deconstructing faith. And we hear a lot of people, uh, you know, YouTube videos about how I deconstructed. Is deconstruction linked in some way to progressive Christianity? It is,
3: because at the heart of it, what you find is like, oh, your version of Jesus that I was raised to believe is harsh, is dogmatic, rigid, narrow-minded, bigoted. And as I encounter people who have a woke version of Jesus, he's more enlightened. And so that's a form of deconstruction in that regard. And so, yes, you do see a lot of people say, I don't believe in the Jesus- taking it literally the way I was raised. I take it metaphorically, mm-hmm. Jesus is one way to God. And so some people's deconstruction is that what they're saying, in essence, is I reject that false view that my parents forced me to believe growing up. Okay. And now I have the 2.0 version, the enlightened, the progressive version
0: of Jesus today. Certainly some churches are going that direction. What are some of the telltale signs that a church might be moving toward a progressive view of Jesus?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. I appreciate you bringing it up, Jeff, because that's one thing I help people in the book do. And also, as a pastor and a Christian apologist, when I'm traveling, teaching people, is I look at five key things to really kind of help them remember. And I give visuals. And, and so they can visualize this. Number one is think of the think of the brain, think of the mind. And at the heart of it, to to identify if somebody's going progressive in their church is if they have a postmodern process of not just information but of truth. What that means is truth does not come from God. God is not truth. So they either have a version of God that He is impersonal, we don't really know much about Him, and so your experience is what you are to live accordingly as, right? So that's how you your biasm or your belief system is derived from your own experiential truth. So that's number one. So if you start hearing this commonly being taught in the Church about truth, that it's not objective or absolute, that's a concern. Number two is if they deny Adam and Eve as original historical uh, Mm. individuals who God created from His image, He created a male and female, and they deny original sin, that's another major red flag. Number three is that they're also now teaching that Jesus, you know, in the Scriptures and all the apostles and prophets, again, as I was mentioning earlier, are to be taken metaphorically So, they kind of like have these spiritual overtones to scripture and they deny the historical reliability. That's another concern. And the last two is again, Jesus is one way of many ways. Mm-hmm. That's a progressive false view. And the final one is when it comes to the gospel, it's not the person of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. They teach in progressive surroundings, these all inclusive churches with the rainbow flag outside their church. They're teaching. Oh, well, the social justice movement, that's really the gospel, okay. not just Jesus. And so those are five ways to look at it as you're navigating working through a church to be concerned about.
0: That's very helpful. Uh, some of us may have a, a you know an encounter with a, a relative, or you know those awkward Thanksgiving dinners where we have a nephew come over or an uncle, and there's a conversation about Jesus that isn't quite right, not quite biblical. What is the best way to respond to a person like that who's been taken in by a false view of Jesus?
3: Yeah, so this is actually going back to when you asked that previous question. Why did why were you so compelled? Because this is where. I spend most of my time, Jeff, is people who are coming to us broken, they're discouraged, they're upset, they're worried, because they're having a lot of these conversations. As I just came out of Philadelphia uh, just yesterday, as I'm I'm, I'm recording with you right now, the reality is people are coming to me in groves with these type of issues. These are not what-if situations. These are real-life situations that grandparents and parents, even siblings, are having, and so the first thing that I want to just remind people is, listen, we have to pray for people who have been not just sidetracked, but have fallen prey to the false doctrine of progressive Christianity. Number two, when you do engage in, like you said, whether it be a, during a holiday meal, a birthday, or just a gathering or a get together, our attempt is not to argue with them and become divisive. Our attempt is to try to understand why they believe what they believe. Oh, that's good. And so number three, rather than be an aggressor who's going to get all over them, right, and you feel like you have to defend what you believe, what you want to do is be an advocate of God's truth, and what that means is when you're having a challenging conversation with them, you don't want to be embarrassed, you don't want to make it awkward, you don't want to feel uncomfortable, you don't have to all, have all the answers. Mm-hmm. But what you want to do is you want to be able to engage them by asking key questions to formulate an understanding of why they maybe at one point believed Jesus was the only way, John fourteen six or Acts four twelve, and now they're rejecting that notion, and that belief, And they believe that it's all-inclusivity, right? That's the the path forward. And so once you gather that information and understand, again, just being very cordial, being very keyed in on them and being very interested, that's when you can start then engaging them on the evidence of Scripture and ask them freely if they want to be able to open the Bible with you objectively. Or you guys, again, you guys are coming from two different backgrounds, two different opposing ideas, But can you guys be able to lay out a plan, a covenant, if you will, a contract to where you guys can reason one to another? And I think that's one of the key things. Most of the time what happens, people get intimidated. They go into
0: attack mode, and that inevitably does not work. Well, that's, that's great advice, Jason. Great advice. Once again, the name of the book is Hijacking Jesus, How Progressive Christians Are Remaking Him and Taking Over His Church. It's available at christianbook.com. You can also find out more about Jason Jimenez and his ministry at standstrongministries.org. And we encourage you to check out the podcast, Challenging Conversations. Jason, it's been great to have you with us today and for writing this book is a great help to the church. Appreciate you, Jeff. Thank you so much. Next week on The Stand Radio, we'll talk with Dr. Jerry Newcomb about the illegal immigration crisis on the U.S. southern border and the overwhelming support Texas has received from other states. We'll also hear how everyday Christians are standing for truth in the public square in spite of opposition. If you've missed a part of today's program, you can hear the podcast and review the guest and resource information at AFR.net. The Stand Radio is a companion to The Stand magazine. Get your free six-month subscription and read the online articles at afa.net slash the stand. For questions or comments, email us anytime at thestand@afa.net. I'm Jeff Shambly. Thanks for listening today. Join us next time here on The Stand Radio.